Welcome to the C Word, the Conservatives podcast. Today we're talking about zero hour contracts. I'm Jenna Mathiason, an objects conservator based in Kimmarthenshire. And I'm Chloe Ramsey, an objects conservator based in Manchester. Welcome, guys. Hello, everyone. Today we're going to talk about zero hour contracts and sort of casual work. Mm. I think from our point of view, mostly conservators, but also a little bit broader than that in the museum world. For that, we've got some fabulous people with us. Guest hosts, would you like to introduce yourselves to our listeners? Hello, everyone. I'm Tom Hopkins. Uh, I'm a co-founder of Fair Museum Jobs. I currently work as a curator based in the West Midlands and have previously worked across various collections management roles in museums. Uh, and I'm Louise McAward-White. I am also a co-founder of Fair Museum Jobs and I've worked at uh, any job in museums that I could get paid for. <laughs> so events, education, front of house, documentation, collections management, curating, not conservation. So yeah, that's me. Welcome. So nice to have you here. I'm pretty excited that we've got Fair Museum Jobs on board for this one, to be honest. We're obviously big fans. We're we're big fans and we're coming in hard on this topic. So Yeah, exactly. I'm really excited. <laughs> coming in hard. That's definitely our default mode, coming well, in hard. So I think we yeah. should be fine. <laughs> yep. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Always at 11. That's, that sounds about right. <laughs> Uh, exactly. Maybe the first thing I love opening with a definition is sort of like, so we're talking mm. about zero hour contracts, but if there are people yeah. who don't know what they are, and maybe people abroad, you may find that you call them something different. So what what is a zero hour contract, guys? Do, do we have some sort of idea what the definition is? Also known as casual working. I have casual certainly noticed that that's what we've started mm. labeling it. Which seems ridiculous to me because it's like, oh yeah, I'll just, you know, stroll into work. <laughs> Super cash. <laughs> Maybe write an email and go home. Like it's, it sounds less threatening than zero hour. Yeah, 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 yeah. it does. Yeah, it's yeah, definitely yeah. trying to dress something up a little bit, guys. Yeah, <laughs> it's trying to get away from that. I think it's financial uncertainty and precarity, which is mm. the thing it's trying to dress up. Yeah, it is a little bit. Mm. So essentially, you have a job, but you might not if they don't need you in. So you can be working, or you can not be working. Yeah, this is the thing because I feel like um, when I sort of over the years have talked about this sort of this sort of employment with other people. They've been like, oh, so it's just a temporary contract. And I'm like, no, like a temporary no. contract or a fixed term contract, there are things that you have a certain amount of hours and you know how mm-hmm. long you're there for. You know what the expectations are. You're guaranteed a certain amount of work because uh, it's what you're contracted to do. Well, a zero hours contract can also be a temporary contract mm-hmm. uh, or a permanent contract. You could, uh, you know, those are two separate bits of contract, you know, brought together. So a really common example, I think, of a zero hours contract is maybe something where there's a busy period over the summer and they will contract for three months, zero hours front of house workers to cover that really busy opening period, for example. Uh, That's a really common usage of zero hours contracts. It does tend to be used a lot for things like seasonal work, uh, that sort of thing. Um, But as it sort of says on the tin, a zero hour contract or like a zero hour job is is you guaranteed zero. Yeah. They are not guaranteeing you anything. So yeah. it could be you that. You could have 37 hours a week or one or none. Or, or none. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. it's it's tricky to plan for working one of mm. those. It's one of those if you're lucky to have another, another source of income or, you know, you, this can be alongside 
maybe a part-time job or something like that, you can have other bits of employment alongside this term, t- type of employment, which can be nice and can be flexible. But equally, if this is your only source of income, it's extremely precarious. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, then we're back to sort of... <laughs> This is the thing that I bring up all the time in conservation, being kept women, uh, because yeah. often conservatives are women. Uh, that then you're relying on your other half to bring in their, their work, uh, their money uh, to pay rent and stuff like that. And this can, of course, be a terribly stressful situation. Not that all conservatives are women. That's not what I'm saying. But it is certainly female dominated. Zero hour contracts are, they guarantee you no work in particular. They do give you some actual employment rights, though. So it's mm. it's not a complete cop-out on like this isn't slave labor (laughs) this isn't that bad you will be paid for the hours you work and not more there is some allowance for i believe sick pay and holiday but only in relation to the hours you work well that's where those two sentences you've just said sometimes i think in reality contradict each other Mm. because in theory you don't get paid more than the hours you work but in practice, and in my own experience on a zero hours contract, mm-hmm. what actually happened was that they added a percentage differential onto the number of hours you worked to negate the fact that actually you don't get sick time. If you are ah. ill on a day you yeah. could be at work, yeah. you didn't work that day and you don't get paid. And the same for holidays. So in theory, you are entitled to holiday time, but in practice... You're just not going to be rotored when you say you're away Mm -hmm. and you're not going to get that. So they often an employer will add on like a couple of percent to your pay that you you put in for on that contract. So it's true and not true at the same time. Yeah. A common line and a line that I will read out from one of the adverts that I know sparked this whole episode is, in fact, holiday pay will be paid on top of the hourly rate and eligibility under a pension scheme also applies. So that's the sort of sort of standard line is that mm. there, there will be something extra on top because you're not getting these sort of usual things. That That's pretty common. But it's really important to note that all other employment law does apply to you. Uh, yes. Like employer health and safety applies to all employees of any kind. If you was on a zero hours contract for a long time with an employer, you would become eligible for, you know, everything else like uh, maternity leave, mm. paternity leave, all other uh, redundancy and all of those kinds of things. The same as you would if you were any other on any other kind of contract where those things would apply over time. And is that based on the number of hours that you work? So, for example, if you were on someone's books for six months, but only did, say, two months worth of work, you wouldn't be eligible for things no. like parental Length leave. of employment is the date your contract to be a zero hours worker mm. started. And time just elapses. It's not the amount of hours you work that Ah, make you eligible. It's the time that you work there. And the same as for part-time workers. You know, if someone's working part-time, their probation doesn't take twice as long. It takes the same amount of time. It's just those are your hours. So, no, it is absolutely the legal length of time passing in the normal linear fashion (laughs) that applies to you. Yeah, this this isn't like you don't have to unlock your rights uh, (laughs) by, by spending a certain amount of hours with your employer (laughs) that isn't how it works thank god i like that it it is a good point about the sort of length of time with an employer that sort of makes you eligible to maybe Mm. be properly employed this was certainly an interesting thing somewhere i worked in the past where essentially they cut everyone off after a certain amount of time so they would not be eligible to become employed Uh, so there was a cutoff point where you're no longer on the books because nine months that's it then we have to employ you and we're not gonna 
Uh, <laughs> oh, sort of like parking where you can't return within yes. a certain yeah. amount of time. Yes, yes, yeah. exactly that. So the parking scheme of employment, which is nice and uh, exploitative in a different direction. But, you know. <laughs> and I mean, that's really the key word I think that we're going to be coming back to here is exploitative. A mm. lot of things about zero hours contracts can be exploitative. And it all depends on how they're implemented and why they're being used mm, as to yes. whether that word applies or not. And I feel like there's a lot to delve into, into what you can do um, with a zero hours contract, because I wouldn't say that we're fundamentally against them in theory. What we're against is the myriad of bad practice associated with the use of zero hours contracts. <laughs> exactly. And I, I reckon we're going to get, get into that a bit more later, actually, uh, because I would love for listeners to take away like how, how these things can be handled well, because it's not that you can't ever do this. It's like there are genuine good things can be about, you know, about zero hour contracts, the flexibility that they offer. You can have another job alongside them. You can turn down the work. You know, you're not obligated to work it if you don't want to or you're busy doing something else. I'm against them. Ooh. I'm just going to say I'm against them. Just just hard against them. Hard against. Excellent. Okay. I definitely could have my mind changed. I was just going to pick up on the fact that, Jenny, you mentioned that you can take up other work while you're mm. doing a zero hours contract. In fact, you legally cannot be prevented from doing so. Yes. It's a really important point. I suppose in many ways we should thank Sports Direct for that being enshrined <laughs> legally because thank it was Sports a big direct. it was a it was a big thing with Sports Direct zero hour contracts a few years ago that their staff were treated incredibly badly. I mean, I think still are treated quite badly, yeah, probably, um, yeah. but could not take up other work even when they were on zero hours contracts mm. and wow. The outcry of that actually made that be a legally factual thing. Mm, so, yeah. as much, you know. Another point in its favor is that, I mean, <laughs> there are very few exceptions to this, surely. Uh, but, you know, you have to be be paid the national minimum wage. You know, say, or a contract, you can't be, you know, paid an hour or something like it. It isn't. It isn't slave labor. Uh, it's you. You have to be. You know. You have the basic employment right. Like it has to be. Yeah, but we can't. We cannot say that the positive of this situation that it is not slave labor. No, That's I mean, re- like <laughs> you are quite well, right. You are quite we're being right. Paid. I mean. Uh, <laughs> What's to complain about? Absolutely. And and here is a completely different level of uh, fightiness as well, because then we're going to get into, yeah, but national minimum wage is probably not appropriate for conservatives and it's not livable for most people. Um, so, everyone. so actually, that's not that great. I mean, we advocate for the minimum of real living wage, because yeah. that's a thing that exists and can be known and is based on research yes Mm -hmm. but when we say minimum what we really mean is like literally the very least you can do as opposed to do this it's not a suggestion it's a flaw yeah do better exactly I find it interesting that actually on the government website there are like uh, there's like a guidance section on like what's appropriate use of like uh, zero hour contracts Um, and it's stuff like uh, it's not an exhaustive list they they have five examples right one of them is new businesses so you you know you 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 brand new you you don't know Uh how you're going to cope financially yet and stuff like that yeah yeah that's that's acceptable will almost that your employers are going okay well I'll work under these conditions in order to help you get off the ground it, yeah it's more that fluctuating and unpredictable demands mm. might come up if you see right. what i mean uh, right. so but that does that, that's that's great for our industry which famously has so many 
Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, of course. Yeah, clearly does not apply to heritage. Um, (laughs) Well, some of these museums are only a hundred years old. I mean, give them some credit. You know, how can they plan their time effectively so young? The second one they bring up is seasonal work, which is something we've already sort of talked about that, you know, for, mm-hmm. you know, if you if you know that uh, you've got busy times uh, over the summer, for example, when you've got increased open hours and stuff, mm-hmm. that, that can be uh, that can be a good thing. Uh, there, there are such things as annualized contracts, though, which is... Uh, yeah. Okay. Or you could just know that every summer you need to properly employ more people. And you... Here is another point, actually, because I have, you know, worked alongside people who have had pools of casual staff or zero-hour contract people who've had to ring around, you know, like ring 20 people and ask if they can cover the shift on Sunday and none of them can because, you know, they've got other stuff on. They mm. they are allowed to turn down the work and they so they still can't find anyone because it's not shift work in that sense or it's not rotated in the same way and stuff like that. So actually, this seems to be more of a headache, honestly, than just employing people <laughs> properly and making sure that you have people cover all the bits. You Quite. know, like... It it actually doesn't seem to solve anything in some ways. Can we just have a quick um, explanation of annualised contracts, please? How to process. So say um, you've got a contract that lasts over a year. You've got a busy period in the summer, but a quieter period in the winter. You may be working full time hours in the summer months. And then over winter, you might go down to something like half time. Right. But you would know that in advance. And they normally would be advertised saying something mm-hmm. like, 1500 hours a year and you would it would give you at least some indication of when in the year those hours would be i've seen that for national trust so either front of house in the summer or like we do a deep clean every winter so your hours are in the winter yeah exactly so i definitely feel like this is or at least used to be fairly common practice uh Mm. i don't know that i see it as much anymore perhaps because this sort of uh style of employment uh the zero hour contract uh type stuff has possibly superseded a little bit but i'm not sure the next example is unexpected sickness so to cover staff sickness this i feel is a completely appropriate use of uh stuff because what i'm annoyed by is that most of the time in heritage organizations everyone's worked to the bone and as soon as Mm. someone goes down sick everyone has to do three times the amount of work somehow just make it work if I, if in actual fact we could just call in some extra help on those times because every business, including museums and heritage organizations, should plan for people being off sick. That's mm-hmm. business planning. You should be able to plan for that and somehow make adjustments when appropriate as opposed to just go, can everyone else just work really extra hard? The next category is special events. So the their sort of thing here is like a wedding venue might need extra staff uh, for when the actual weddings are on or catering, that sort of thing. Um, I mean, I would take some issue with that because like your special events aren't a sudden surprise to you. You know, the wedding venue example, you're not planning your wedding the week before. You're booking that venue six months minimum. If you're lucky, it's six months. And I think that's the same for museums, you know, and heritage. You know when your big event periods are. Maybe it's the same weekend every year or maybe it's not. But you're not planning it two days before. You mm. you're, you know what's coming up. So you wouldn't, you could not use a zero hours contract for that if yeah. you wanted to. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like the special events one is one that will, will probably be more likely to be abused by businesses of all kinds, including heritage, I feel. Mm. Yeah, I have a, I have opinions about that. That one might be a little bit interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have opinions based on the um, main institution that, that 
kicked this off, but we can talk about that a little later. We definitely can. The final category that they say, well, that they sort of have as an example of a good use case would be testing out a new service. So you're uh, an already established com- company or whatever, and you're trying to figure out if you actually want to roll out a, a new service. So you're trying it out. So you're not committing to um, hiring the new, the new staff before you know if it's even viable. And I'm like, I... I'm trying to think of a time when I think that's a good idea. Because <laughs> I'm like, I see what you're saying, but also I, I don't know how I feel about it. But also, what if it's a trial, why not contract staff for three months? Yeah, like mm. surely if you just do a short-term contract, then why would the overheads be so different? If you but see then again, mean? short-term contracts are a, a, another you know, precarious problem. They, they, they are. Absolutely. It, and, and then you do get into a bit of a, well, which problems are the least worst yeah, you do. For an employer yeah. on one hand, but also for an employee, what is the precarity that's, for lack of a better way of asking the question, which precarity is easier to manage mm, for an yeah. individual? And that's the problem with that is there's never going to be a, a answer because no, it's no. different for everybody how you can, you know, manage your life with everything else that's going on in it. Yeah. My personal opinion is the more information you have, the better. So if you, if you had, so uh, recently I was asked to decide whether when we were hiring someone, I was told I wasn't allowed someone full time. This is now, the whole situation has now changed. But it was either you have someone for four days a week for six months or you have someone full time for two months or something, something roughly along those lines. Those aren't the real numbers. And I was thinking, okay, well, I would say personally, having someone four days a week for six months would be preferable to full-time for two months because at least then you've got six months, you can get your your rented your rented accommodation for six months. And then for those that additional one day, you can get a part-time job or something and you know how many hours you're being paid for, you know what your income's going to be and you know how long for. But if it's a zero-hour contract, you can't even get the different days you I, th- I think what you said about accommodation is really interesting. It, it, yeah. There's anybody who has uh, moved house recently, like um, some of us uh, have, know how, how difficult it is, even mm-hmm. if you've got a permanent contract on a relatively good salary, it's really, really difficult. And yeah. So if you, if you don't have that, um, it's hard. It's, yeah. it, and, and it's limiting the you know the pool of people who can do that work so in this in the uk at least you usually need to upfront pay for a month of your rent in advance and whatever your deposit is which could be an additional month's rent or like a grand or something like that depending on where you are in the size of the flat or, or house or room or whatever and so you can only do that so many times. You don't, and you can only rent for say six months and then a rolling contract or whatever. But you want to have some level of idea of what you're doing and where. And I think there's a genuine brewing crisis actually in museums and heritage of people who are having to like have a patchwork career, moving mm. around constantly, temporary contracts, zero hours jobs, fitting everything together like a jigsaw puzzle that is pieces from completely different jigsaw puzzles, yeah. <laughs> and then. You're not forming roots in a place because you're constantly having to look for the next thing. Yeah. You, it's hard to focus on your job if you know in two months you've already got to be looking for the next job. And I think we are doing a disservice to ourselves and to everyone who is employed in any form of, of what we're actually expecting from people. And that is exacerbated by zero hours contracts 100% because the uncertainty is so much higher because 
if your employer is not doing a good job with its zero hours contract mm. pool, you might not know on a Monday whether you're working on the other days that week. Yeah. And, you know, there are things people can do to make, to sort of mitigate that, but it never goes away fully. Even if you're rotated, you know, a month in advance always, things change and mm. the certainty just isn't there. And that's if yeah. you get paid. Because a big problem that I have read multiple times and experienced is if you're on a zero hours contract and they don't think you've handed your timesheet in on time Mm -hmm. or your manager doesn't sign your timesheet or your timesheet doesn't go to the right person, you don't get paid for that month. And that is just so unacceptable that we would ever think, oh, someone's done a month of work, but it's okay. They can wait till next month for us to pay them. No, they can't. Have you seen the world? I can barely do 10 minutes after my paycheck comes in. You know, it's not acceptable at all for that to ever happen. Once we may have been paid weekly or bi-weekly. Yeah, to sort of, weekly. Yeah, to sort of help stagger it a bit. Although that's also, that's an insane amount of paperwork to be filling out literally all of the time, which is also an interesting carousel of nightmares. Also, an, an angle that I never really hear people talk about, because now I've seen sort of both sides, I guess. Before, I was the one doing the zero-hour contracts. Mm-hmm. And then for a bit there, I was employed and I saw other people do zero-hour contracts and and really, really short-term temporary work. And something I observed in the people around me who were on, let's say, steadier contracts, uh, longer term, maybe even permanently employed, is the sort of institutional trauma you are actually putting them through for constantly having to get to know new people and mm. try to not manage them because that sounds like it, that's not their job. Obviously it is, but more of a getting to know someone well enough to know how they work best, who they work best with, how they can be part of the team, how they can be supported at work only to have them sort of whisked away because obviously it's a precarious employment situation. And like the, the sort of amount of sort of personal trauma, this sort of it's, everyone seemed battered for the experience that they just sort of didn't know how long this person was going to be around for. Yeah. Uh, if they got on really well, the, the sort of immense sense of loss when they mm. obviously went to find a better job somewhere mm. else was was uh, almost palpable. It was it was really interesting. Yeah, that's that's something that really strikes me that it's. I don't know if it's particularly in museums, but there is a particular situation in museums of institutional and collections knowledge that one builds over time and it's it's maybe in conservation in particular it's about perhaps the specialism and if it's a curatorial it's about you know knowledge that builds on itself we learn about you don't turn up in a collection and you know what's there because the museums don't know what's there (laughs) yeah working in the space moving things around that are gigantic knowing about the equipment all of that and where stuff is in the museum and how you turn the this on and how where the how to store this or where all of those things all of those things yeah. collections history where the different like information if you're doing documentation where the different like object history files are and stuff or none of that you don't know any of that if you just start where where, where the subcock is where, where you turn off the fire alarm how do you switch the electricity off in the event of a leak you don't get that build up so it's constantly for the people that work there permanently or have been there for a while you're constantly giving that induction but if you're that individual and for the sake of the institution you don't have people who know about the collection because you don't give them a chance i think as well if you're not there you're not practicing that knowledge Mm. like if you're on a zero hours contract and you come in 
once a month to do something remembering in between and if you have other jobs in other organizations like there's only so much your mind can hold and I absolutely have forgotten things in but in that time if I've not Mm -hmm. used it for a month how am I going to remember I mean I can't remember where every fire assembly point is you know if I'm working three jobs or you know all kinds it's it's a lot to expect of somebody My level of confusion after a holiday is extreme and I only work in one place and I'm often only away for a week. <laughs> but yeah, I think the thing about institutional knowledge is, is really important. I'm three years into my current job mm. and, you know, I'm still finding caches of documents that are really helpful that I didn't know they were going to be in this particular mm. location. That's still happening and it's probably going to still be happening another three years down the line and, yeah. and more. And I think if you're on a zero hours contract and that's how you don't know everything, I think there's a wariness sometimes of permanent or longer contract staff to, and this sounds like an awful thing to say, but to give away their information. Mm. Because if you're constantly working with a new stream of people, you're going to feel protective of your institution and I mean, that's a whole different discussion that I don't want to get into. They won't love you back, guys, as Alice Proctor says, but you it makes that working relationship harder when there's a constant churn of people because you don't always feel like you want to share everything with someone who's just come in, you know, two minutes ago and you have had, you might not have ever met them before. And then you're working with them intensely on a short term project as this, you know, the the job that prompted this discussion suggests you Mm. will be. It's a bit of a mess. I also find it interesting that the guidance specifically says the CRS contracts are not appropriated for regular hours, if you see what I mean. If it's like regular hours over a continuous period of time, because that means they should be a re- regular contract. Yeah. So if you're expected to come in between 9am and 1pm Monday to Wednesday for like a 12 month period, then that is a, that is a different type of contract. That's a job. It shouldn't be a zero-hour contract, for example. I have definitely done that, though. <laughs> I was on a zero-hours contract working full-time for six months. Wow. And they knew I was going to be working full time for six months and I was what? on a zero hours contract. I was always the person in for the cleaner in the morning, yeah. opening up. I was the last to leave and I wrote down every single one of those hours and I got all my money because it. I knew I, w- I knew they were taking the piss, but I was mm. like, you know what? At least I can rake it in Yeah, because, you know, what else can I do with this to my advantage apart from play that system and get as much money as possible you have very little power in that situation so you you got to use the only Mm. thing you can which is i work these hours pay me so shall we talk about what is happening in the world of casual and zero hour contracts in conservation in specific because this is something that i've been aware of as obviously jenny and i have worked in the same place on something that equated to a zero hour, but it, it there was a little bit more stability in that as we knew the project. And did we have any assurance? I'm not sure if we did. I think it was not a firm assurance. Mm. I think it was more about, we will essentially need you for this amount of time for these yeah. amounts of hours. But because we sort of can't write that down properly, it'll have to be a casual contract. Yeah. Uh, it was a lot yeah. of workarounds. Uh, similarly to, you can only be here for nine months. After that, you will be let go because mm. that way we have to work around this, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I then carried on doing this for longer than you did, Chloe, mm-hmm. I think. I think, yeah, 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 you, yeah. You, you, you moved on before me. Uh, so this, this was a whole thing. There was a point, I should say, where, where essentially 
I was told on the day that, oh, from next week, it's going to be half of that amount of time uh, because we, we're we rejigging it. And I burst into tears in front of this person and uh, because they, they didn't live in a world where that meant that we would be evicted from our lodging. Like they didn't, live in, a, they didn't live in a world where that would matter. So that's a problem. I think it, it may be significant that the museums that had the projects... They were paying us in that format because that's the solution that the specific university had to pay for casual workers, which was set up in order to pay students whilst they were studying. Yeah, it wasn't really meant to bring in people from outside and do these sorts of jobs. But it was the solution that was there. That was the format that they used. I think there's a real issue with actually everyone pushing back when they get told oh you could you could have a zero hours contract post do this Mm. well what if no what if we didn't have that and you come to me with something else that answers my question Mm. or if I tell you this is a solution that will work and I do think we I mean this is why fair museum jobs have to exist because there's we're not pushy enough in heritage to advocate for ourselves yeah I think one of the issues as well is that so much of the sector is dependent on on project funding and that, by its very nature, is going to be fixed term and temporary. Yes. And maybe this is just a broken model of funding. I'm pretty sure we can 100% say that it is a broken model of funding and something needs to change. It's like, here's a shiny thing, can we have money for it? Instead of something that's actually more sustainable, longer term. Yeah, we yeah. know we're going to be doing an exhibition a year for the next five years. So let's fund it for five years rather than per year or per exhibition. Well, not just that, like, it, you know, a commitment to a program of we will yeah. always be aiming to do at least exactly. one exhibition a year. Yeah. Yeah. So always have that funding. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and another thing we've seen uh, a lot is really, really terrible job adverts with a major funder's logo splashed all over it. And it would just be re- really nice to see some accountability as well and uh, a prerequisite for for project funding that actually any project staff are going to be recruited and treated fairly. Mm. Because it's a direct contradiction to say you value diversity and inclusion and the things that all museums are now saying they value and want and then to treat your staff badly and to recruit them poorly and unfairly pay them because zero hours contracts are a direct line to a less diverse workforce yep. yes there are many reasons that it's true but i mean we've touched on some already around you know you just can't afford to live and pay rent and mm-hmm. if you're already um marginalized in many different ways being a carer living in particular areas of the country your educational background there's so many factors that are going to impact your ability to take on this work and then the people who can take this work on are going to be more of the kind of homogenized museum workforce that we already have. Yeah. And it's, yeah. it's basically an option really only open to people with some form of financial safety net. Or people building that patchwork and working four jobs and stressed out of their minds and get half a day off a week. Sometimes yeah. living on people's sofas because that's the only option. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A, lot of, a lot of couch surfing for sure. Uh, or people who uh, do insane things and uh, borrow, borrow money. While I was quite early on in my career, I was working three jobs, one zero hours and two contracted posts. And there was a point at which I had no money to travel to work mm-hmm. and someone anonymously left a tenner in an envelope in my like oh my pigeonhole at one of my jobs because they knew that I couldn't get to work 
at all if I didn't have that money, you know, because if all your paychecks come in the same bit of the month, yeah, yeah. Yeah. there's a bit where you're going to be struggling. And yeah. I think there's a reluctance to actually talk about that and what mm. that means because we do experience that thing of people not understanding that actually I've got a lot of bills to pay. I've got a lot of things mm-hmm. going on that make it hard for me to work in this way because there are still a lot of upper middle class people working in museums who might have no concept of the fact that cost of living is increasing, Mm -hmm. you know, and and there are problems. Usually those are the people in charge or the people who do the recruiting, which is the... (laughs) The thing is yeah. they hire up the food chain because that that's where they're at. That poses a problem. And that's, you know, how I ended up crying in front of someone who had never considered that they might be employing someone who's poor. Yeah. <laughs> Not even, you know, it didn't enter their worldview. They are a lovely person and, uh, you know, were absolutely great. But I'm I'm just saying they, they didn't live in the same world as me, um, no. which, is, which is interesting. Um, and and that's, that can be, a, you know, a, a big problem. Back to how these are coming into conservation. I've known about these. We obviously, as I, said, I was saying, we have worked in them. Um, it tends to be for the, the, the other experience that Jenny and I have done, and you, you still do, Jenny, as freelancer, is working as a freelancer in a, an exhibition venue rather than a museum, that sort of thing. But that's not zero hour. That's freelance. And then a few, uh, about a year ago, I got an email from a member of the senior leadership team of my museum, which was really interesting because my museum is about workers' rights, basically, uh, more or less about workers' rights. And this, the, it was a link to um, the Lancashire County Conservation Studio advertising for zero hour or casual, I think it was called casual let me just find the actual words so that I'm doing it. <laughs> An appropriate disservice? I don't know. <laughs> accurate representation of it. An ac- accurate, yeah, accurate representation. Yeah, it was casual hours per week. Yeah, conservation and collections, casual hours, it was called. Yeah, it was zero hour. Salary, £15 per hour, which I think we should talk about salaries later on. And this was, a oh, just sharing this as a model of something that we could do potentially if we had too much work. And this is thought it was unacceptable from the start. So we didn't follow through with this, but that was the first introduction was somebody from higher up in the museum saying, how about this is an idea? Somebody else is doing it. So maybe we can do it too. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you could have input and say, this is inappropriate. Well, what I don't know, I have not spoken to um, Lancashire Conservation Studio, uh, but frankly because i didn't have time uh basically no other reason than that um so i don't know where it came from i think in that the advert that was sent to me was specifically in conjunction with a project so um rochdale town hall project so they needed specialists like paintings and things like that for that specific project i don't know what they're doing now and i have not spoken to anyone so i if if anyone has any information i'd be really interested to hear um i've heard on the grapevine that the tate museum are doing something a little bit more unofficial so they don't advertise but they encourage cvs from specialists basically specialist conservators if they need more textiles or more 
books or more whatever. Right. So they're taking a thing that's already a problem and making it more problematic by making it also rely on networks that you may or may not have access to. Yeah. It's about networks. Yeah. So what I don't, again, I've not, I, I did um, contact a friend at the, the tape, but I have not heard anything and I've not been able to find any information about it online. I've just heard, this is, this is grapevine talking here. Mm. But, but but regardless of whether it's true or not, I think we can probably say, please don't do that. <laughs> it is gated quite substantially. And again, I don't know how many hours they would be thinking. I don't know if maybe there is a zero hour format at the Tate that um, allows people to be paid in this way. I don't know whether they would be paid as a freelancer. I'm particularly interested in the use of freelancers in this situation uh, conservation freelancers in the situation on wages that are far, far lower than we expect freelancers to work at. Yeah. Um, I don't, I, I spoke briefly to, um, our friend, uh, exhibitions tech about this because exhibitions techs are work, work on this format all the time. Yeah, they do. They do. Basically what she said was that sometimes they set the price. Often she sets the price. The differences she saw between conservation and exhibitions tech is in terms of qualifications and in terms of regulation and what conservation is required to provide to assure that we're you know good at our jobs so it there it is it isn't unheard of in museums by any means and there are whole chunks of freelancers like exhibition techs that work specifically on short-term contract well not even short sorry as work as freelancers but i don't again i don't know but I think there's a real different thing there. And for me, it's about choice. Mm. If you are working as a freelancer, you have chosen, hopefully, most of the time, you, hopefully, you've chosen to work as a freelancer. And you know what that means? Mm. In, in a best case scenario, freelancing is a choice that you've actively made. But I think there is definitely an issue there with zero hours contracts being used because you don't want to pay a freelancer's day rate. <laughs> yeah. Basically. Because yeah. Like £15 an hour is not acceptable pay if you're asking for a nope. qualified conservator with however much experience or any other museum role with this qualification and this experience. £15 an hour is not acceptable. And you're asking for that because you don't want to pay a freelancer. I have no doubt in my mind that that's the choice they've made. Well, exactly. Shall we get specific here? <laughs> Who are we yeah. talking about? Let's say from this point that we are not hating on you lovely vna it's just a bit where we say we have friends at the vna please don't hate us we have friends at yeah. the v yeah, it's 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 not that we they're a symptom of a problem they're not the source of the disease so we're talking about the muse the vna <laughs> zero hour contract worker pool that is the phrasing they have advertised for a pool of conservators for zero hour work for, I'm going to read the words, loans, exhibitions and display. Yeah. A pool of freelance conservators for loans, exhibitions, displays. Mm, not freelance conservators, zero hours conservators. Free, well, it's they call for freelance conservators, which I think Do is they? significant. Yep. 
Uh, pool of freelance conservators for loans, exhibitions, displays. Early career conservators with a recognised professional conservation qualification, general and specialised, and they must demonstrate practical skills. Remuneration will be based on the complexity of the project between 16 and £28 per hour. That's what we're talking about. There's been a bit of a stir with this. And I feel like the, we're not hating on you, v by any means. But there is the... There, there are some problems here to address. <laughs> that, yeah, there's one of the things, like, I didn't kick off about the Lancashire Conservation Studio one. Because it's a smaller institution. Let's let's face it. The the larger <laughs> institutions. <laughs> the, the larger institutions must be operating to a higher degree. Okay, be better is what you're saying. Like be you, better. You've got to... you set the the standard for the world. Don't do this. I think the issue is that they have enormous amounts of prestige and fame, so they will put up any job advert and will get all of the applicants in the world which mm. means they can depress their salaries as far as they want because they're big yeah. grand national institutions as well they tend to draw leadership from yeah. people more removed from the precarity of everyday life and i think there is a little bit of a lack of empathy and understanding mm. about just what people mm. are going through at the moment. We see this all the time as well with uh, job adverts from, from another big famous museum, the British Museum, <laughs> uh, which always <laughs> seems to underpay their staff something vicious. Um, because again, people love working for the British Museum. It's such mm. a great name to put on your CV, etc, etc, etc. We call that the curse of gratitude you're made so grateful for your job your role your organization the prestige the glamour that you are just so grateful that you will settle for less than your worth yeah that that's that's pretty much where it's at i don't know um chloe what did you see or hear when this first uh, dropped because it's still open this is this doesn't it's close still open, yeah so if you want to apply for it you from the release of this episode you'll have until the 19th of june so if you want to go for it you know um you can so i first heard about it in conversation with um i often don't look at iConnect. i'm really sorry um is it on iConnect actually you know what? I'll, I'll check i'll check I'll i check thought it was. it was which is why i also have a um a statement from icon it is on their it website. Is on their, okay, yeah. So I, I saw that it was advertised by Icon. Uh, it was bought up in my studio office. Um, and I have, you know, relatedly asked Icon for a uh, little statement about this. They've been super diplomatic. Um, so... Yes, yes, it, it, it was. It was on yeah. the iConnect on the 27th of May. Okay, and has it got that little red bar where it says, you're not paying these people enough? It actually doesn't. So I... I did actually some maths in my research for joining this conversation. Mm. Um, I've even got my calculator oh, to me. Um, <laughs> that actually, even if you take the lowest they're offering to pay mm. on this post and you make it full-time mm. hours, it is above the icon mm. minimum salary so recommendation. Interesting. But the problem is it's not really true. Yeah. Because that's not what you're getting. As soon as I heard about it, I did think, guys we need to do an episode on this because it's it's got there's lots there's lots (laughs) i have a lot of feelings (laughs) i know i can tell i know dear listeners that you can't see chloe's face right now but it's one of a lot of emotions (sighs) 
do I, I I've, I've sort of well, I've got a big list of notes and stuff. I'm not really sure how to frame my disagreements with this. Okay. Perhaps we should, perhaps I should say at this point that I did email the V&A HR, but I, and I sent them a really nice email, but I, and I didn't get a response, but I only sent it on Friday morning because I'm a dead and, um, I, we're recording this on Sunday and I accidentally let it sit in my inbox for a day. So even had I sent it when I intended to, I only would have sent it two days in advance. And I don't think that's a fair right to respond. I would say that the Fair Museum jobs experience of challenging other V&A roles has been a lack of engagement. We did get a response from once over email about salary cloaking. Okay. Salary cloaking being when you say a salary is competitive, but you don't give numbers because the only acceptable salary is numbers. So they've said this one is competitive, but they have given numbers. Yeah. So in the actual thing, it does say salary competitive, which is a huge red flag, guys. Never do that. Um, and then it isn't until you scroll to the very, very bottom of the actual advert that it says that the range is between £16.50 and £28 an hour. But even then it says expected to fall within. So even that is not actually a guarantee. Um, I just want to, I just want to add that, that that's, the word is expected. Oh, should we just start randomly picking apart things that we don't like about this? Can I pick my first yes, favourite red yeah. flag? Um, my first problem is with the idea of it being a zero-hour worker pool mm. that is also a freelance conservator's yeah. pool because those two things are not the same type of job, are not the same yeah. type of contract, and should not be paid the same. You know, if I generously assume that it is a eight hour working day that they're asking for, if you do a day of work with them at £28 an hour, the upper limit, I'm being as generous as possible. They would be paying you £224 for that day of work. We don't really advocate for anything under £250 a day as a freelance rate. And even then, there are so many caveats for things that should be paid more than that as a freelance rate. I'm not going to go into all of those, but certainly if that's the upper rate for this job and they're saying they encourage individuals with more specific specialisms mm -hmm. and you could be working any of the seven days of the week because it, because they're saying they're resuming their seven day operation. Mm. In the UK, it's expected that freelance conservators work between, from my experience and my own studio's adjustments in terms of inflation and all of that, is between 40 and 60 pounds per hour. Something along those lines, yes. Maybe let's drop it to 35. The, it, this is backed up by the Museum yeah. Freelance survey that included conservators. Oh, thank you. Uh, so, yes, we do know that that is the sort of rough rate. Mm -hmm. My studio is, is £50 per hour. Basically, what we're saying is it's way higher than 28, guys. Way higher. Oh, and yeah. if you're saying you want freelancers, what additional benefits do you get for working for the V&A on less money than you would if you were a, just a freelancer working for a client that wasn't the V&A. I think you'll find there is pension and other great benefits, so we should be grateful. Yes, uh, I'm really, really enjoying that the benefits are said to be pension and other great benefits. Hello, you're working for the V&A. What more could you possibly want? Maybe you can pick up a free greeting card in the shop. Um, 
I don't know. Um, but you know, it, it's, it's not very specific is what I'm saying. And that's always a red flag as well. Yeah. That's something we've noticed with job efforts previously. I think it would be disingenuous of us not to mention that the V&A went through a massive range of cuts last year, mm-hmm, yeah. including heavily to conservation and conservation science as the discipline that it is within the V&A is a, cause they do have a slightly like separate science. They did have a slightly separate scientific unit as well as conservation. Yeah. And there have been massive cuts there. It is hard mm. to see this job ad in the light of that and not feel mm. that decisions have been made and now welcome to the consequences yeah. of your actions. You don't have enough staff to do the projects you've got because you made these choices. So I feel like we need to step back slightly from our anger anger and, and think about possible benefits just for the sake of <laughs> impartial. We're not impartial, guys. That's why we're doing this. Impartiality. <laughs> Um, one advantage to working in this way is going to be that if you're in this role, you mm-hmm. could get to work on some genuinely yeah. exciting and interesting things and it will be really varied. Mm-hmm. If you're able to, to undertake this work, there's, there is a potential that you will have an amazing, interesting, <laughs> yeah. and you'll learn a lot and you'll yeah. get training, you'll be in that environment. I'm, all of that is yeah. true, but that doesn't mean you're not being exploited in order for you to have that mm-hmm. good experience. You know, it's sort of similar to volunteering in a way. You can have an amazing volunteering experience, but you're still working for free. I think we've reached the crux of it, which is that there are some benefits for some people, but those people are from disproportionately privileged backgrounds. It doesn't benefit everyone the same, and this has an impact for the makeup of the sector workforce. With all of the conversations that we've been having and that ICON have been having and that uh, unions have been having is we need to tackle the lack of diversity in the museum sector. This is the opposite of helping. Like it's not, it's not. <laughs> or is this consistent with one of the V&A's commitments to diversity and I have receipts because in uh. one of their previous gender pay gap reports, they said that they were going to work to reduce their gender pay gap, which at the date of that report was in favor of men by, and this is a quote that I'm not making up, hiring more low paid men. More low paid men? Why, I, why not just make, okay. Uh, oh boy. Um, <laughs> it's very difficult to, <laughs> it's difficult to move on. Yeah. Um, I was going to say they, they are sort of clearly to me after mostly new graduates by the looks of yes. entry level people. Um, so here again, we're back to how those people are able to afford anything. They've mm. just gotten into massive debts because, uh, mm-hmm. because of university. Degrees are so expensive these days. Yeah. So. There are so many levels of problems here, guys. Perhaps we should say at this point as well, if you've applied for this job, good luck. And <laughs> we love you. And if you've got to do it, you've got to do it. And unfortunately, you're being forced into the situation. We, 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 you're not stupid for applying for it. They're stupid for, for <laughs> forcing people into the situation. And if you have applied for this job or other similar jobs, and no matter what organization you work in, <laughs> major advice here is, 
join your union. Mm. Join the union. Yes. Yeah. Prospect is good for the arts and heritage. So if you get this job, join the union, you are entitled to, as one of the great benefits of working there, you are entitled to join the union that best represents you. I know they have a couple depending on your, you know, type of role. So join the mm-hmm. union because they will mm-hmm. be able to advocate for you. Just to make this conversation spicier, I would like to say that I have applied for this and for <sighs> a very, very specific reason. Mm-hmm. This was, oh, how much can I say without landing someone in shit? Um, this was suggested to me. I'm part of a group of conservatives trying to uh, match up refugee museum professionals from Ukraine with mm-hmm. job opportunities around them. So often mm-hmm. they end up in London. So I'm part of a team of conservatives who have volunteered to write to various organizations and try to figure out, figure out, are there any opportunities at all going at your institutions where you could help, you know, keep up people's skills, uh, make them feel part of uh, a profession, uh, even though the world is, is chaos and they're not having <laughs> a good time. Um, yeah. This was genuinely sent to me as a sort of a, this might apply, uh, this might be something that people can do. So to figure out if this was a process that I think someone with maybe not the best English skills yet or English as a third language type level uh, could apply to, I've gone through the process. It is not easy. This is the usual HR system that is used for all applications within the VNA. It is a horrendous system. This isn't particularly pissing on the VNA, it's that a lot of large organizations in the museum and heritage field have the worst HR systems for <laughs> filing applications that you can imagine. Uh, the forms are complicated. Uh, they ask for complicated references that no refugee is ever going to be able to give you. They uh, ask for an awful lot in complicated ways. Uh, so I would be surprised if uh, it would apply to anyone that needs help. But I did try it because I wanted to see what it was like. Um, and it's not an easy process. For To think that this is for a zero-hour type thing where you might never even be contacted from it is sort of sucky, mm. to be completely honest with you. If there could be a smoother way of uh, having gathering people's details in some sort of database for this sort of thing, that would be preferable. Um, mm. You can still have an open open call to have people apply but this the the method in which this is done is also not good in addition to the actual advert being quite shite can i jump in at this point and say at no point do we think that the conservatives at the vna are in any way responsible for any of this there's no control here they will have been offered an option and they will have said if is that the only option you're giving us Yes. All right, I guess. Like the, there might have been some adjustment to wording. There might have been some, I don't know. I have no idea how much control the VNA has. Basically, this is a high, high decision being made to solve a problem that they've been presented by the team. This is not their fault. Whenever we criticize job descriptions and recruitment practices and working practices, it's not about individual people. It, it's about an institutional approach and institutional choices. And what, what this says what any job ad in any way says about your institution shows what you value, what you're trying to do, what's important to you. And it is a public mm-hmm. thing that is published and open for debate mm-hmm. and discussion. It's just the difference now is we're having this discussion here in a way that's going to be mm-hmm. published as a podcast. But you were having this discussion in your yeah. workplaces, you know, just the same. A lot of the reasons that 
bad job adverts posted is not malicious. It's it's a lack of resources. It's an old job advert being copied and pasted. So often it's only small amounts of influence needed to make small but meaningful changes. Um, so a, a, a lot of the time people have more more agency and more influence than they, they think they might. I think what we what we do have to think about to try and like take this because it is ultimately depressing. But we do have to think about what we can do, you know, mm. to change the situation. And actually, there is a significant amount of evidence, all anecdotal, nothing I could point to in writing, that, that things are changing. We, as Fair Museum Jobs, we set up, you know, five years ago. And the what comes to us now, I would say we get generally less bad things Good. than we maybe did five years ago. There is a lot more open discussion and recognition of the work that needs to be done and the the impact of mm. recruitment on diversity and inclusion and equity and i think there is a lot more open conversation you know across the sector as a whole about mm. recruitment and i think that's it's really important that we are all talking about it because when we all become managers and the people who are coming mm. up behind us become managers these are going to be things at the forefront of our mind that we're going to feel able to point to some evidence mm -hmm. and challenge and that's really important that we all have some power and advocacy even if you are an early career professional in your first job mm. and you don't feel like you have power sometimes just asking the question oh why is this being mm -hmm. done this way can be quite powerful because someone your manager might just be doing what they mm. did last time and doing what the person before them did and if things have just carried on over time you taking that moment in your first job to say i don't understand why you're doing it like this i've seen other places do it differently just opens that conversation which is a start and i think we all lose track of the fact that we do all have some power because we spend so much of our time mm. feeling like we don't but any small change is progress and it's you know be pleased mm -hmm. when there is yeah small yeah. progress and i think you at fair museum jobs do really excellent work and you are literally impacting positively impacting the museum jobs market it is that's it's a discernible discernible improvement ultimately the goal is that we won't need to exist we'd like to be so effective that we do ourselves out of needing to be there that's the goal. It's, everything should be good. And, you know, it's really possible to make those changes. And Chloe, you emailed Icon as well to just sort of yes. uh, see what their, what their feeling was about sort of zero hour contracts and stuff. Was that right? So I emailed, they got back to me within the afternoon and Patrick wrote an essay with bullet <laughs> points and links and it was very comprehensive. Uh, I do have permission to read this out, but I'm not sure how. Do you want me to read out the whole thing? I know that Icon stands is they're not a union. They're not a union. Join a yes. union. <laughs> Join a union, yeah. Um, it, generally, they're being very diplomatic, but they understand the problem and they are keen to support their conservators in the way that they can without being a union. Um, so, ICON remains committed to supporting professional conservators, heritage scientists and others advocating in, for fair remuneration and employment conditions. Our recently launched strategy 
link inserted, sets out ICON's aim to achieve wider recognition of the value of conservation that conservation brings to society. A key part of this is to ensure that conservation professionals will be better rewarded for their skills, expertise and professionalism. ICON is a membership organisation and professional body rather than a trade union. Join a union. It doesn't say that. I put that in. Uh, and as such, we have limited ability to influence the job market or employment practices ourselves. However, we are committed to identifying what we can do either on our own or in partnership with other key sector stakeholders. Following on from our 2022 conservation salaries survey, link inserted, we are in the process of organising a roundtable debate on the issue of conservative salaries, which will also take into account the nature of employment, i.e. the use of freelancers and those on zero-hour contracts, to help us identify the practical steps that we take to address the problem. ICON will continue to, and we have bullet points, provide support and guidance where we can, including revising our minimum salary guidelines. Thank you for that. Encourage our members to consider joining trade unions where appropriate and we will continue to work alongside Prospect, IPSE and others to advocate for better pay and conditions. Join a union. Work closely with our members and our sector partners to advocate for fair levels of remuneration that are in line with those expected by a highly skilled and technical profession. Support the excellent work of lobbying organisations such as Fair Museum Jobs. ICON actively welcomes the input of our members to help shape the work that we can do in order to effectively serve professional conservators. As such, we would welcome any member to get in touch to share their views on this topic to ensure that as a sector, we can support and retain the talented conservators and heritage conservators in our field, as well as bringing in new people into the profession. And then it's the nice thank yous and hellos, and I hope that helps. So in the interests of Full disclosure, we mm -hmm. are talking with Icon about appearing at the aforementioned mm -hmm. event roundtable, talking about conservation salaries. And we have engaged with them in the past about our work and generally salaries in the sector. And Icon are ahead of the curve in some of their thinking, I think, on salaries compared to some of the other membership organizations. But I do think there is a general point to be made here about all membership organizations of any kind across the whole sector, of which ICON is one, but there are many others, where people are paying to mm. advertise a job. And I think the difficulty is membership organizations need to mm -hmm. raise money. And one of the ways they do that is by having paid for mm -hmm. job listings. There's a something in there that I can't quite articulate fully, but there is a factor in where a membership organization says that they can't do more when actually there's conflicts mm. for you mm. for doing more, but you actually could do more. And again, not exclusive to ICON. It's a real mm. general situation, I think, across the board. Um, and it again, that is changing a little bit. So the Museums Association won't list anything with a competitive salary at all, which is the least <laughs> you can do. I mean, any jobs board that isn't doing that and we know the big American Museums Association's job board are still holding out, oh, nice. Uh, nice. which is yeah. shocking. And there's a big, massive campaign now with the emerging museum professionals in the US to basically mm. boycott that jobs board and not put jobs on there because they will not 
put in a salary mm-hmm. rule. Um, so I think the UK is sadly ahead mm-hmm. of the curve in a way that shouldn't mm-hmm. need to exist on some of that discussion. But I think there is a real conflict of, of membership organizations mm-hmm. and priorities. And um, but ICON are doing mm-hmm. quite a lot of work and that there is a minimum entry level salary recommendation that has finally been revised. So that's good. I hope that they do then revise yeah. it more regularly as well. Um, well, just going back to the jobs boards, I mean, yes, it makes the um, membership organisations money, but how how much? I mean, they could probably take the hit if they assigned it the priority that they should do. But I think what ICON do actually is is a fairly good middle ground, because at least if something is below that minimum salary, they're flagging yeah. mm. that that is true. So they're taking your money, but they're also telling yeah. you that you're, yeah. you yeah. need to do better. And that is visible for the individual members who are then seeing that, you know, and you're able to at least make a conscious choice to then apply for a job that is below that salary. But as we've discussed today, this V&A pool is meeting that technically entry level salary, but it's everything Mm. else around it. And you can't take salaries fully in isolation because there's so much else that Mm -hmm. goes into making a job environment good or or bad or average. Yeah, absolutely. And then that's, you know, before we go into, well, freelance rates and everything else. Uh, the other thing that this made me think about was uh, Christina Rosaic, uh, one of our founders, uh, she did a talk in, was it 2019? I can't remember now. It was 2019. About sort of the trend over time in terms of conservation salaries that had been advertised and that they there was a demonstrable shift that salaries did start going up a little bit uh, after Icon first introduced the minimum level there. So it's not that they're always over it because that's very much not the case, but it's more mm. that it did set off a general trend of things going slowly, slowly upwards. So mm. it is doing something, even if it's not doing it nearly as fast as it should. And it, it's probably not, arguably we're not punishing people hard enough for um, <laughs> and continuing to advertise things well well below that but it is it is doing some good uh so that is mm-hmm. demonstrable through uh trends which is uh, just just a shout out to christina's work on that so i didn't clock this i, I read the advert this morning for the vna um zero hour worker pool and i'm confused about the last point that i wrote down and that is remuneration based on the complexity of the project i thought that the remunerate the remuneration your pay would be based on your level of experience i thought that's how it would work but if it says based on the complexity of the project who decides how complex the project is what do you mean by complex do you mean like whether you've got to i don't know just conserve the object or whether you've got, say, 50 objects that you need to survey, condition report, conserve, pack and send off. Like, what do you mean by complex? If I had to guess, looking at the list of tasks mm. that they're going to do, I would assume they've effectively banded the tasks. Ah. So doing a condition report or 10 condition mm. reports, I would suspect would come in at a lower hourly pay than a specialized object mm, treatment that's right. probably what they've done yeah the final thing that i just want to bleat on about i'm the reason i'm annoyed about this and this is not about 
sal i'm annoyed about the money obviously i'm annoyed about the the freelancer and the fact that it's in london and that you're putting people in precarious positions <laughs> and all of this but the thing that really gets me is okay i understand that museums work project-based i do get it Given the kind of relentlessly ambitious attitude that the big museums have, particularly the V&A maybe, have to headline exhibitions, big fancy shows, getting the objects out, the, the demand. I've been to the studio, uh, one of the studios in, for training, but the demand on the conservators is constant for projects and the big fancy exhibitions where people can wander around at the private view and drink wine and have donors and all of the fancy, fancy, really, you know, spectacular. They are bringing, they are, they really, in their, their exhibitions really raise the game of museum exhibitions it is so it firstly it's assured they know they're always going to do this they know that all of those things have a set you know they've been doing this for years they know that all of these projects require the same amount of stuff the same people so my gripe is that they won't just employ people to do this why not do you know that they're going to there's going to be the work what's the, the worst case scenario is that someone finishes a project and it's maybe a month or two before the work really kicks off on the next project why is it so bad to have a month or two to be able to go and maintain your collection <laughs> i don't understand go and repack stuff in the store or do a collection survey or rewrite your risk assessments like it's it really pisses me off. Like the, the core stuff is important. The core stuff is why we know what we've got in the collections. This is and so why we common. know where it is. I'm so angry about it. it wait, you can't just live exhibition to exhibition. It's not about wandering around with a glass of wine. It's about caring for the objects and getting them access to people. My God. <laughs> this comes back to the point we previously have made. If you have a completely project dependent sector, this is where you end up and nobody wants to focus on core work and nobody wants to fund mm. core work and it's not glamorous and it's not exciting but it allows you to do everything mm. else that you do as an organization you can't run your fancy glamorous wine and celebrity exhibitions if you don't have your stuff cataloged mm. to even know what you have in the first yeah. place yeah If I would want to just leave any single point for the end of this, it would be that when an organization shows you who they are and shows you what they value, mm. you need to believe them and go in open-eyed. Yeah, absolutely. If you're enjoying the C word and would like to support our work, then please consider becoming one of our patrons. For as little as $1 per month, you can help us keep our episodes online and more of them coming. Patreon helps us meet our regular costs for the show, and also to plan ahead so we know roughly how much of a monthly budget we've got. That's super helpful when you're trying to do something special like buy a better microphone or save up to go to a special event. Your support also helps keep us free of advertisements. In return, our supporters get access to our archive of extended episodes, which you can only access on our Patreon page. Yeah, for that $1 a month, you get a little extra audio enjoyment. We've crunched the numbers, and it's about 10% extra content on a regular basis. That's not bad for less than a cup of coffee, eh? If supporting us sounds like something you'd like to do, then head over to patreon.com slash the C word and join our bunch of absolute champions. And a warm welcome to our latest patron, Maria.
Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for listening. We're the Seaward, and you've been listening to Tom Hopkins, Louise McAward White, Chloe Romsey, and me, Jenny Mathiason. Join us next time for a road trip special. In the meantime, you can check out our website at theseaward.show, tweet us at the Seaward Podcast, or simply email us on theseawardpodcast at gmail.com. Intro and outro music is Spain by Didi Music, used under a Creative Commons Attribution License. Additional music and sound effects by Callum Robertson. This has been a Wooden Dice production. 